Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... This is Courtney Baker, a professor at University of California, Riverside. And Prof, it's wonderful to meet you. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work, and I have a lot of affection for UC Riverside uh, because of time that I, I spent there. I wonder if we could commence by asking you what is dynamizing, preoccupying, worrying, interesting you these days. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And uh, the, the feeling is, is quite mutual. Um, what is on my mind today? I, I think I feel much more preoccupied with the context of my work, which I think of as research and teaching and what that means in this cultural, historical moment. I've been really thinking about um, not just what I, I, I nominally research, which I describe as Black cultural expression, but also what it means to be doing that work in the university environment at an extraordinary institution with extraordinary students like the ones at UC Riverside um, in a world that is rapid, that has seen rapid and devastating changes from pandemics to genocides to rise of global fascism and um, thinking about what the work is that we're doing and what it means to do work now, particularly in terms of cultural work. And Prof, one of the things that you're renowned for is both helping to establish Black studies as a discipline, uh, and there are many people who were doing that before you, there are many doing it now, there are many after you, but you have been one of the builders of that discipline in particular institutional contexts, yeah? Yes. And I'd love to hear your views on that. Inevitably, perhaps, that involves, and your scholarship shows us this, a mixture of a tale of suffering and woe and horror and terror and tyranny, but also of survival, success, victory, and so on. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, A, being one of the people trying to set up the infrastructure of Black Studies, but B, the dilemma of needing to confront the truth of suffering and the truth of resistance and survival. That is such an excellent question. And I'm also deeply flattered by being included in that mighty and, and really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say an ancient lineage of Black study. As scholars like Nick Mitchell have pointed out, along with Fred Moten, that as you as well point out just in your framing of the question, focusing on the institutionalization of Black study is only a part of the, the story and only the later part of this larger history of what it means to study, research, prepare for the future, 
And in terms of this history of marginalization and violent suppression of Black knowledge and Black life, what it means to do research and work um, to, to establish care for one another, to permit wisdom and knowledge to continue when it is so devastatingly under siege. And so in my work institutionalizing Black studies, I think the most um, the most straightforward work that I did was at Occidental College, where along with um, my colleague, Erica Ball, historian, we worked in the wake of student, extraordinary student and faculty uprising and activism to establish a initially a program and now a department of Black Studies. And it, it, it took a while and we were thorough. And um, yeah, there were, there, there, well, it's not a one size fits all, but one of the things that we could lean on was that there is at this point a very robust history of institutionalization of Black studies or African-American studies or Africana studies. Now those mean independently different things. I mean, Temple University is, is Malani Karenga uh, and um, Malafia Asante. It's very focused on Afrocentrism. And then you have the model that other folks are probably very more more conspicuously aware of that that Henry Louis Gates Jr. is helming at Harvard. Um, but there are so many different iterations of Black studies. And as, as compelling as the work that has emerged out of Black studies is also the work that has been done, not just by faculty, but also largely by students in establishing Black studies programs and departments. And so... Um, I think especially coming out of maybe a, a liberal arts teaching environment for so long, where I was initially at Connecticut College. But I mean, this also translates through my experience working particularly with undergraduates at UC Riverside is, is what it means and the ways in which Black studies has, has been responsive to needs on the ground the needs of students, the desires of students. It's also been respectful of the wisdom that students are already bringing into the classroom um, that they're encountering. And for me, it's maybe particularly in the U.S. context, not the obvious origin point, but a, but a main source of inspiration for me just taking scholarship and research seriously and seeing the institution as a place where we can do that work has been Stuart Hall, who's coming out of right, the British context. But the way you know he's drawing, as you know this well and have, and have discussed amply, the way that he's building upon, say, Matthew Arnold's insistence upon being, paying attention to the working classes and the way that the institution has been conceived as a kind of gentrification project but that it doesn't have to be that, that we can actually lift up and engage with these undervalued cultural objects, ways of knowing. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a pleasure to do that. And Prof, before we get on to your own research, for a bit of context, uh, because 
the plurality of listeners are in the US, but the majority not. Could you explain a wee bit about both Occidental College and the liberal arts college, liberal, little liberal college tradition in the US, and also the University of California and specifically Riverside and its student body? Sure. I'll maybe start. Um, well, I'll start with the, the liberal arts college. Um, it takes up, as I understand it, the liberal arts um, kind of thesis. So we could reach back into those pr- those principles, the versions that you get of educating a student body to be the leaders, to be what the Renaissance man and the kind of uh, 19th century University of Berlin model, right? Um, philosophy, um, a kind of sense of well-roundedness that can sometimes take as its inverse the kind of vocational training, for instance, Um, but that is also largely focused on a four-year plan for students leaving high school, so intending to be from the ages of 18 to 21. And the liberal arts colleges in the U.S. also tend to largely be private, which means that it means a lot in terms of their funding um, streams and revenue streams, but also the cost of enrollment there. And so on the plus side for students, it means that they they get a lot of um, smaller size classes and potentially more hands-on involvement directly with faculty. University of California is part of, and I learned a lot of this from Christopher Newfield, um, who, yeah, um, is part of this public education project. So is also informed by this longer lineage of education, but it's really, particularly in the mid 20th century, looking to a a different and a broader idea of a public and working alongside you know, working alongside principles like the GI Bill and just the growth of the United States in the wake of World War II and the strength um, and like things like the Marshall Plan to be able to include educational advancement for students in addition to the kind of wealth advancement. And in both of those versions, you can already detect, right, the, the, the racial and at times gendered limitations of who was presumed to be the student body in this student body and i think it's fair to say prof that in the case of a little liberal arts college it for decades was basically white upper middle class in general right and actually uc riverside was it initially meant to be the swarthmore of california's public it was meant to be a, a white, small liberal arts college. That's what they thought of it as. But it's become one of the most diverse campuses in the country, right? And I would yeah. say mostly working class, first generation in college, and very cross-racial. Would that be fair to say, do you think? That That is accurate. And, and UCR really touts and celebrates, I mean, they use the the term social mobility, but but they really are quite proud of being federally designated a Hispanic serving institution, which was 
predominantly the student population is of Latinx origin and having an extraordinary number of first generation students, meaning that they're, the students are largely the first in their family to attend higher education, universities and colleges. And as I say, in a moment, I want to get on to your own publications, so your research yes. from the past and present and future. But again, given that there are lots of our listeners who are not in the United States, I wonder if you could help us a little bit with the concept of racial formation in the US, because, and this is not by no means a settled argument, as you know better than do I, you know, in, at various times you mentioned Stuart Hall, Black Britain can be deemed to include people of Caribbean slash African origin, people of directly African origin, but sometimes people of South Asian origin. In the United States, it gets very complicated, even in terms of people of, say, Dominican or Puerto Rican origin who have some African heritage versus Africans versus African-Americans. Uh, when I say versus, I don't mean opposed to, but, you know, conceptually distinct. Sure. And some of that you've already alluded to by referring to Africana studies, which doesn't mean Africana with a K for people. It's not you know, Dutch origin South Africans, it's Africana with a C and African-American and black studies. So I wonder if you could just unpack a little bit. I'm putting a lot of responsibility onto you here, I realize. But if I you love could it. unpack some of these <laughs> concepts in the context of, let's say, the black experience in the United States. Yeah. Um, no pressure. That's such a yeah, yeah, sure. I'll just solve racism right here. Um, so, so, I mean, it is so vexed and complicated. And I would even be moved to say experiences. And this, I'll bring it around to you ask me kind of what I'm working on. And I want to say that my work, led by, by Stuart Hall's Guiding Light, has to do with representation. So, I'm particularly interested, you know, in what is, what is, as Stuart Hall wrote, what does this black in black culture mean? It, it, um, as a category, and first of all, that term is a political formation in the U.S. that is a reclamation of what was historically a slur. So if you think of James Brown's Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud, from the 1960s or the Black is Beautiful movement or the Black Power movement, those are deliberate reclamations of the term Black. So there are prior uh, kind of top-down government census reports and designations, colored Negro. And for, I would say, predominantly the preoccupations with Blackness and with African-American identity in the United States, which is absolutely shifting with global migration uh, patterns, just as in the UK and elsewhere. It's been significantly informed. The, dis the critical discourse, but also significantly the political discourse has been deeply informed by the 250 year history of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery. And I say that that, I think, looms large, though we are in Black studies, I think, really trying to 
think about these global collections and not reproduce the kind of boundaries um, that characterize prejudices and bigotries and basically racism. Um, but insofar as when we look at foundational national documents and we see narrations of and descriptions of blackness and of African heritage identity, um, to the extent that until, I believe it's 1860, until the Dred Scott decision was overturned, people of African heritage, even if they had been in the United States for four generations, were not legally citizens. Um, so we're talking about, when we're talking about Blackness in the United States, we're talking about a, a particular site of exclusion, of marginalization, marginalization, of suppression that at the same time of necessity needed to form its own networks, its own knowledge pathways that also retained um, and snuck in a lot of the wisdom and practices from the African continent. But because of the laws against reading or speaking one's indigenous language or practicing one's indigenous religion, a lot of really important cultural work was done by the descendants of enslaved Africans to not just retain, but to also produce um, pr produce a form of a distinct form of culture that I think many times it, it's most robustly recognized in the southeastern United States. But even within that, there's an enormous amount of diversity. If you look at, say, the Gulf Coast, which has a, a French legacy, right, and a Spanish legacy, um, the Spanish legacies in the southern U.S. and also California, where I am, right, and the Southwest being kind of occupied Mexico by by another name. So there, it's such a vast, it's such a vast expanse, and there are so many um, different implications for blackness. Across mm -hmm. histories throughout throughout this 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 nation and this continent, um, yeah. And just to say, insofar as those are, it, my interest in representation has to do with you know how do we how do we make sense of what blackness means without reproducing re reproducing bigotries or or policing blackness and what it means to be black. And instead, attending to the possibilities that come from these hard-wrung cultural social formations. And, Prof, a lot of these things, these issues are quite brilliantly addressed in your book, uh, Humane Insight. And Humane Insight has a, it has a beautiful title, but its subtitle is... Sorry, the podcat has just intervened. I love it. <laughs> it has a beautiful title and a sort of depressing subtitle that I think bring together syntagmatically Af Afrofuturism and Afro-pessimism, if you like. I wonder if you could tell yeah. us a wee bit about the book and the mixture of hope and survival along with an archive of suffering that the book addresses. 
Sure. Thank you for that question. And I appreciate the, the, the cat's intervention <laughs> to, to stop <laughs> the devastation of the subtitle. Um, he is he is a bit of a macho guy. Uh, he's <laughs> entering adolescence. He's very hard to control. And he doesn't like daddy playing with the keyboard. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm going to put my hands away, hoping that his <laughs> intervention does not include weird configurations of keys that intervene okay. drastically in our conversation. So anyway. Well, I'll just pull a Kamala Harris. Let me finish if you try to show her. Just yep. keep going. Okay. So, um, so Humane Insight, it's a book that as many first books emerged out of my dissertation. And you asked about, um, I, I feel like I kind of fell into it. It was published in 2015 and I wasn't, you know, Afrofuturism was certainly a term that was circulating as we know. Um, Afro-pessimism was on the rise, but even Black Lives Matter as a movement was not fully developed, I would say, as as I was writing the book. And so the ways in which the, the project, which attempts to trace the, the activist uses by African-Americans of the image of Black suffering towards the ends of um, what would now, I think, be called abolitionist, I mean, broadly abolitionist politics. Or, or Black liberation politics. Um, I, I think I think that, that the book kind of grew into into some terms that didn't pre-existed. Um, so it, it ranges. As I said, I really feel like I fell into the project. So much has happened over the past gosh twenty three years. Part of how I think about that book is that it is it was for me a post 9-11 book, a post 9-11 project, because I found myself and I say some of this in the introduction. I found myself simultaneously looking at the images of devastation of the World Trade Center in particular. I'm from New Jersey and I worked around there. My dad was working nearby there when um, that happened. And I, I found that I couldn't look away and at, at these spectacular scenes of death that we don't often see in the United States happening on our own, on, mm. on U.S. soil, mm. as it were. And simultaneously, I was encountering the image of Emmett Till, who was the 15-year-old uh, child who was killed in 1955 um, from Chicago when he went to visit his family in Money, Mississippi. And his mother, uh, Mamie Tomobli, who I also consider one of my one of my teachers and guides, though I never met her, I was I, I, I realized that I was looking away from the image of Emma Till even as I was looking toward the images of destruction of 9-11 to try to figure out what was going on. And I realized that that there was something to that impulse and that Mamie Till was, was saying something, that there was an argument. And I've, I've always kind of identified activists with the extraordinary sacrifices that that, that requires to just be 
in my heroes. Um, and so I was interested in the project and the book in tracing the tracing the people who looked into the worst thing imaginable, who looked into the worst sins of slavery, who worked with and through the lynching campaigns, and who also, which I close with, who looked at the images of devastation in Hurricane Katrina, um, the destruction of, of life. And I wanted to basically just track how those images were, were mobilized and to also interrogate, you know, what was underwriting these images? Because the image in and of itself is inert. So, but they're being mobilized. And in the case of um, Ida B. Wells, the great journalist who took photographs that were being circulated privately and publicly of lynchings and recruited them to an anti-lynching campaign, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's the, the mobility and flexibility of the image. So I was really interested in tracing what activists, Black activists during those periods were doing, what they could do, what the possibilities and limitations were for circulating and displaying images of Black destruction. And I wasn't even thinking then about the social media context, which I think is even more significant now and really, really um, in a lot of ways is the first thing we think of when we think about the images of death and, death and destruction. And Ida B. Wells, as you've indicated, is really the beginning of investigative journalism in its yeah. tradition. It, it's not Watergate, it's Ida B. Wells. For our non-US listeners, could you say a wee bit more about Emmett Till, a, a very tragic story that is still a deep wound, but also a story of transcendence as well, I think. Could you share a little bit about his story? Sure. It, um, it is, as you say, a devastating story. So he was a, he was a young child I mean, the story marks out some 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 things about the the Great Migration. Um, so, Great Migration, early part of the twentieth century, and there have been a number, but the significant movements of African Americans in the wake of slavery, the means to control blackness moved into direct acts of violence um, that were no longer authorized by the uh, slave regime, slavery regime. So we see the rise, the, the emergence and appearance of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, we eventually see the destruction of centers of black industry, like the Tulsa bombing. Um, and we also see smaller, and I just mean by individuals as opposed to en masse, attacks on African-Americans in the South who are basically living their lives in ways that um, self-appointed civilians who are endeavoring to uphold white power disapprove of. So what happens to Emmett Till is that he is from Chicago and he is, he is, um, spending the summer with his relatives 
in rural Mississippi and they go into a local store, a white owned store. Um, also perhaps worth knowing, noting that the wealth disparity, that there are a number of ways in which, um, number of white markets that would serve a black populace because a black populace largely wasn't in control, didn't have the means to have a market. So that's some of the, the subtext for the encounter. Something happens in the store or something, a, a, and, and that something can be that, that unwelcome contact or a, was a story about that was fabricated in the store by um, the, one of the women who, who, ran, who runs the store. And so in the wake of that encounter in that moment, Emmett Till is, is kidnapped in the, from his uncle's house in the middle of the night by two white men. And as others have reported, um, likely more, including, um, including the woman who, he, who alleged that he assaulted her. And he was brutally, ruthlessly beaten. He was tortured and he was killed. Um, a cotton gin fan was was tied around his neck to weigh him down and he was, he was shot in the head and he was thrown into, um, into the river so that his body would never be discovered. His body was discovered. Um, his mother was frantic. She couldn't, in Chicago, she did not, she could not, contact him and she learned that her son had been kidnapped um, and she was she was not ignorant of the ways of um, white supremacists in the south and so to kind of cut it short the she demanded that the body be returned the body was returned but it was encased in lime with a with a a seal of the state of mississippi that the box should not be opened it's indicating all of these ways in which officially the state, the sheriff wanted, as she said, this body to be covered up and no one to have ever to know about the crime. The crime eventually goes to trial. The, the two men who are um, acquitted by an all white jury um, and within an hour and only a few months later, they publish their actual account and confess to the murder in Look Magazine. Um, and they admit what they had done, but others who possibly were there, that's, that's still, there's still some investigation. Um, but because of double jeopardy laws, they could not be, they could not be, um, they could not be retried. And so they lived their lives. Mamie, Mamie Till took it upon herself once she was, she received the body of her, her son, not only to demand that the coffin be opened and to look at the horror that had been inflicted upon her son, but also, as she said, to show the world what she saw um, and saying something like, if, if, the, if the coffin lids had been taken off of these, off of these coffins a long time ago, maybe we could have addressed the horrors and stop these lynchings. So she transforms through also black press 
photography, which circulates images of Emmett Till in the morgue, but also through a public funeral, where enormous numbers of people, primarily Black people in Chicago, but also through the international press and through the Black press, others across the country and literally across the world, see this destruction and also bear witness to a mother's mourning and to to the structural racism and the extraordinary violence of it. Um, so there have been scholars who have into, who have marked that that moment and gesture of Mamie Till's activism as the first action in the civil rights movement mm -hmm. to to take to rather than render that moment a private one um, to share it. Yeah. Right. To demand as a way of demanding accountability that was particularly needed in the wake of the injustice of the trial. And, and Prof, one of the things that is important also for people to know is that whilst the southern, southeastern part of the United States is particularly notable for the horrors of slavery, of racism, of torture, of murder, of unequal opportunity, these things occur right across the United States still today. Right. Um, yes. That said, that said, the southeastern United States is a particular horror show, but it's also a place where there is black presence. And you write about New Orleans in the book. I love New Orleans. A mm -hmm. place where I used to live that is still a predominantly black city, numerically, demographically, and that has, as you say, these extraordinary elements of British in slavery, uh, French slavery, which was subtly different, and Spanish mm -hmm. slavery and occupation and so on. Tell us about New Orleans, which is, on the one hand, very American, but on the other hand, very different too. The northernmost part of the Caribbean is one is, is one uh, ah, as some ah, folks say. Ah, okay. It is and it's it's an extraordinary it's it's such an it's it's my favorite it's my favorite my favorite place. And um Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. One one of the things that I used to say about it was the black folks in New Orleans feel they just seem freer. And I mean the ir irony is that it was the hub of the slave trade in the United States. Yeah. Um, there was also, because of, oh, there's so much to say about New Orleans, because <laughs> of the French structures of race um, that are more similar to the Spanish structures, these are Spanish colonial structures of race. Mm. Um, mm. This is how we end up with the one drop rule when the Americans come in. They're developed in New Orleans under the French, a population known as the Jean de, the, Jean, the, the, the free people of color. So in addition to the slave class, and they, and the, there is also a class of African Americans who enjoy their, uh, their, their free status. Um, and so you have this just extraordinary, extraordinary mix. You also have you you have 
you have Congo Square, which is still a place where um, that you can go to. And it was a place where I think it was on Sundays that indigenous people, enslaved people, um, that anyone could kind of go and practice freely their tradition, their musical traditions and their spiritual traditions. So that also, I think, is something that that makes New Orleans in particular quite special because there there was an opportunity and a and a and a, a permitted space to to articulate and to also communicate practices like what we now call hoodoo, which draws from Yoruba religion, um, to use terms and language and to think about, also to think about, I mean, this is going to be a problem, the, the, the potential illegitimacy of the American uh, takeover of New Orleans that produces what we come to know through the Plessy Ferguson lawsuit as the one drop rule that moves from, well, that doesn't actually determine your racial designation to the law. And this is what I mean coming back to my initial statement about this becomes law that if you have one drop of black blood, you are legally designated as black and therefore under the regime of Jim Crow, which was the scenario, the policy that was developed in the wake of um, slavery and the failures of reconstruction to still give what is called second class status to black citizens. So there was legally, um, legally spaces where black people could not go. Those spaces tended to be less well-funded. Um, so yeah, so New Orleans is a really extraordinary place. And it's also, I'll just say this last, it's a population that I think because of so many experiences of precarity, folks that really work on preserving their culture and their history. And, and they're really caretakers of the culture. And, and it's, just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. Now, Prof, I don't want in any sense to regard this as a utopia, but mm. quick story that I think won't surprise you. When I was first, I, I was there first for six months and then for a year and a half, I had two sort of jobs there. When I was fairly newly there, I went to hear some music, you know, which is what mm. white tourists do. But I was with locals, so I didn't go to the ordinary places, let's say. There was a band playing blues and blues-inflected jazz that had, you know, a blonde girl singing, mm. two black boys mm -hmm. playing and a white boy playing together that I assumed had been together 15 years. Mm -hmm. At the end of their performance, they went up to one another and said, that was great. What's your name? Wow. I can't imagine that happening anywhere but New Orleans. That yeah. you could actually get... There's something about the musical world there and the intermixing of cultures that meant these people could play mm -hmm. together as if they'd known one another for decades without even having met before and in a mixture of racial formations. Yeah, I mean, it's the crucible of music, right? It's the birthplace of jazz. That Congo yeah. Square is in what is now known as Louis Armstrong Park, one of those oh, great right. jazz musicians. 
I mean, we wouldn't have rock and roll. We wouldn't have any popular music without jazz, without ragtime, without New Orleans. And yeah, I mean, like what, what you were saying about the Southeastern U.S., it's by turns devastating and terrorizing, but by turns also the kind of beating heart of Black America, I might say. I think precisely because those two things are true, because there are so, the culture is so present. There are so many, so many Black folks there, and yeah. um, there's been such work to suppress it. And, you know, even thinking about, like, as you were kind of um, qualifying, right? It's a utopia. And it's also a, split, a space and a place that is severely underfunded and under-resourced, as we saw with Katrina, but also in terms of educational systems. Just, um, and, yeah, it's not, it, it, it's weird, right? Because it's not something you want to celebrate, but it also does seem to produce these incredible networks at the end of the world, I might say. <laughs> at the end of the world. Prof, can I ask you something about appropriation? The other day I was reading something mm-hmm. by Miri Buraka, no? um, who's one of my favorite poets and thinkers. And as you know, there's a line about people like me, white folks, appropriating black culture without acknowledgement. And we've seen it in, in politics, in performance, in arts, in culture. He says if I'm understanding him correctly, everything is mixed. The problem is not borrowing or stealing. The problem is that the proceeds are not distributed equitably. I wondered if you might comment on on that issue. You know, Madonna, uh, going back decades, has an appropriator par excellence. Is the problem appropriating words and music and dance moves, or is it who gets paid, or is it both? Um, you know, I, I, I mean, it's such a, it's such an important topic now, even in social media, people talk about, you know, which influencers and which dances and who's getting credit. So I think wealth and credit are two ways of thinking about compensation. And I keep coming back to the term of Eric Lott's book, love and theft. And I feel like that encapsulates <laughs> the dynamic, right? Um, that there's a love for Black culture. This is also a Mount Sternberg comment. What would it mean to love Black culture and also love Black people? Why does that, ha- why, why, why are those two things divorced? And I think mm. it, we need to acknowledge that it's quite deliberate, right? Because we're dealing with that scarcity and austerity model that is the, at the root of white supremacy that um, not everyone gets to, to play, not everyone gets to have everything. And I think that's particularly acute in the United States with its origins and its roots in um, in a capitalist system. But um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, Baraka is not one to shy away from acknowledging particular threads and strengths of Black and African arts, right? That's really a crucial part of his alignment with the Black arts movement. Um, And he even says, like, screw white aesthetic. So there's a way in which that that statement and your interpretation of that statement about everything is mixed, 
I think someone like Toni Morrison would would might even argue as she she does if I can take the liberties of interpreting this as her argument in her book Playing in the Dark Whiteness in the Liber the Whiteness in the Dark um Playing in the Dark Whiteness in the in the Literary Imagination that the African presence in the Americas is already is always going to determine American culture, that there's mm -hmm. no getting away from it. So right. even if Moby Dick has really specious representations of Black people, we can read read it slant. And think about, this book is being written during the Civil War, right? On the precipice of the Civil War. It's also being, being hosted on the back of a ship named the Pequod. So it's deeply engaged with the racial configurations of the United States and those conflicts. So, um, but but there is, insofar as, particularly like Booker T. Washington, I do have an affinity for that Booker T. Washington and even Zora Neale Hurston's, some of her more contentious claims, right? Zora Neale Hurston was like, I'm not so sure about this integration thing because one of the things that gets lost, right, is economic independence. And we know that that really matters because Black economic strongholds like Tulsa get targeted. Now that's not to say that's where everything Black is happening, but um, but yeah, there is theft and it is about credit and it is yeah. about, um, yeah, it is about, because it's not just about individual wealth. It's about having having the capital resources to start something rather than appealing to a, a philanthropist, right? Or a donor. It's about being, um, you know, seizing control, and seizing control of the means of production. Well, here's another perhaps stupid ass quotation, but one that's always taken me, muddy waters talking about the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, when the Stones and the Beatles yeah. came to the United States, they wanted to meet black artists because they knew what they owed, uh, in inverted commas. And Muddy Waters saying, supposedly, of the Rolling Stones, they stole my music, but they gave me my name. Yeah. Um, uh, but this is only part of a bigger story of debt and the need for reparations. Prof, I had a couple more questions for you, if I may. And then yes, I'd please. like, after those couple of questions, I'd like to throw it to you for anything you'd like to add to what we've said. Does that sound okay as a way of proceeding? That sounds great. Okay. So the first question is a bit like, you know, a biologist or an economist confronting you. How do you know the things you know? You know, what's your method? How do you learn stuff? Prof? I study, I read, and I don't mean... Um... Just Instagram. <laughs> um, I tried to. Okay, Instagram and TikTok, right? Yeah. I mean, as somebody who's worked in popular culture, and you know this, right? We, we need to, we don't, we don't, you know, the, the, the goodbye Mr. Chips image of, of scholarship is not really, is not really where it's at, at least in terms <laughs> of my work. Um, but I, 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 I know. <laughs> I feel like I want to ask, ask to say this to people. Yeah, I know because I study, and I and and I really mean that seriously. And 
I get frustrated when I hear things like education is a white phenomenon or something or a Western phenomenon. It's not. And this is why I can come back to McMitchell or the long history, the Fred Moten kind of thinking about black study, that study has always been a part of the project. I can't imagine Harriet Tubman freeing hundreds of enslaved people, just doing that on a whim, right? Everything needs needs study. So I know, um, and I, I'm aware, and I guess being confronted, if someone was to confront me, how do I know? I think there's there's skepticism an abiding structural skepticism about what black knowledge looks like, what in particular, I might say African-American knowledge looks like, but even if that term black doesn't just signify culture, but also signifies what is objected, it's been deliberate. There's been deliberate moves to degrade things, but you can keep coming back to, right? Ida B. Wells did this. Um, okay, so who else is doing this? The NAACP, Du Bois, like all of these people, those aren't feelings, those are facts <laughs> at a certain point. And so you can really historicize, right? Always historicize. <laughs> well, Du Bois for me is the most important sociologist along with, of, of the later era. In other words, he's there with Weber and Durkheim and so on. And Ida B. Wells, for me, apart from, as I say, being, in my view, the the founder of investigative journalism, is also the person who best problematizes the fantasy of objectivity in, mm-hmm. in U.S. newspaper work, uh, an astonishing figure. So thanks for that, Prof. My second question... <laughs> And this is my last one, as I said before, throwing to you, is to say I'm a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 24-year-old. I found your door at UC Riverside. I've knocked on it. And I've said in a polite and modest way, I want to be you. How do I get to do that? But, you know, put it more politely. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I felt... I felt that about Stuart Hall. And I, I think I, when I, I met him once and I said, I'm an academic because of you, I think he was may have been slightly horrified. I think he may have been happier if I had become an activist because of him rather than uh, a scholar. But I guess that I would say that if a student wants to be like me, I hope uh, that it's, there's almost nothing more flattering. I hope it's because they're interested in the potential of teaching and of study um, that like what, what Hall did to for me was to, again, to respect what I encounter and to take seriously um, my intuitions and let that lead. You know, if this is happening, it's not just bad because it's popular culture and we should look elsewhere, but there are deep structures of how we know. And that that's a really fascinating journey to go on. Um, I don't know that there was another part to your question that I feel like I missed. Thinking well, about my own journey. Can I say deep structures of how I know is going to stay with me forever. <laughs> but I guess Underpinning the question in part is uh, 
admiring what you've done and who you are occupationally and looking for a path towards that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And really, I mean, concretely, I would say the U.S. context, uh, and putting aside, well, first thing I often say to students who want to go to graduate school and become researcher is, mm. are you sure? <laughs> um, because higher education in the United States, though I think we're in, in, many, in many other regions as well, I don't want to say it's, it's in a state of collapse. I do understand it to be experiencing extraordinary pressures, mm. some of which are unforeseen, some of which are echoes of of prior moments of of fascism, both in the United States and even in you know there is a reason why the list of people to escape Nazi Germany also included academics um, and artists. So I think I'll say this. I am graduate school, you know, becoming a doctorate is a thing. Um, and what that means in terms of the ability that I have in my position to open doors and provide access, that is wonderful. And I am really, really grateful for this path. But I don't think it's the only one. Um, it's not the only place where one can do work. And in fact, one of the things I love about my colleagues at UCR, and you're, you're, I consider you to be one of them as well, is how, it's how they made connections to people outside of the academy with respect and not, and it included folks in that kind of journey, that knowledge journey. Um, yeah, so so I would say if one wants to be me, well, first be yourself, but also that there are there are many there are many ways to get to 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 satisfy that curiosity about the world and to, to make an impact in the world, and that's I guess also how I see myself and hope I hope hope I exist in the world. That's a wonderful, beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Prof. And to conclude, I'd like to hand over to you and ask whether there are things that you would like to subtract from what we've said or add to what we've said. Um, I guess I might, I might just say, because I, what I'm working on now, because I think it's, it will seem like to some, I've, and I've been publishing more conspicuously on literature and particularly on film. And I think it might seem to some folks as a departure from death studies <laughs> um and for me what's really becoming clearer and clearer to me are the threads that connect one is something i said before which is the structures of representation this is why i will always come back to stuart hall um i feel like his work his insights were abandoned in the united states and in the uk for a little bit but really understanding why we think we know what we know and what are the industries, including the institutional educational industries that are shaping how we know and how we value knowledge? That I'm really interested in. And I'm also interested in acts of care. Um, I had a wonderful and gorgeous experience, and I guess 
in closing, I kind of want to thank my students for responding so beautifully when I asked them what, when we look at this coterie of African-American visual culture, what looks, what is, what is care, what does care and love look like? And they were able to identify not just scenes and spectacles of death, which I think is the first flush of what I exposed them to, what my work is known as, but that we see the flowers that are brought to the funeral. We see the food that is cooked and shared with community. We see Ida B. Wells comforting the devastated remains of the family that was victimized by lynching. And so I hope, I hope for hope. Yeah, that's what I'll say. Prof. Courtney Baker, thank you so, so much. From reading your work, I've learned a great deal. And today in chatting with you, I've learned more. So I'm deeply, deeply appreciative of this opportunity to converse. Thank you so, so much. This has been an extraordinary pleasure.